Claptrap, Episode 8, Soapbox Derby. So for this episode of Claptrap, we're going to delve into one of America's most prestigious pastimes, the All-American Soapbox Derby. And here today we have Matt Estock. He grew up doing Soapbox Derby, and he's going to give us a rundown of how it works and kind of all the engineering and everything that goes into making a Soapbox Derby car. So how are you doing, Matt? Hey guys, doing good. I uh, got a bit of a cold. I think I might have uh, coronavirus, but... The Rona. You got a loss of taste and smell. Yeah, it's been crazy. Last Monday, so it's been a while now, started getting a sore throat, and eventually it didn't get any better, so I went to the urgent care, and she prescribed me just antibiotics because she thought I had strep throat. But the strep test came back negative, but I finished the antibiotics anyway, and my symptoms disappeared by the time I finished the antibiotics. But then this past Monday, I woke up and I knew something was wrong because <laughs> Megan went and got bagels from Dunkin' Donuts. She always gets me an everything bagel, but Monday morning, it tasted like a nothing bagel. So I took a bite and I was like, oh no. And then she grabbed a candle, you know, like a real strong candle. I couldn't smell anything. And I got like a runny nose, you know, typical cold or flu symptoms, headache, runny nose, just congestion in general. But the one difference has been the loss of taste and smell. That's like, it's definitely unique. We're still not sure if you're actually positive. So we're just going to say you got a cold. I waited in line four hours yesterday for a test. Did they give you the brain piercing version or just the one that swabs your nose? So I had the the brain piercing one. I had that done over the summer because I traveled to Idaho for whitewater rafting. But this time they gave me, it was a nasal swab, but all they did was basically stick it in your nose and like you were picking your nose, you know, <laughs> they weren't jabbing it way back there. So it was a lot less invasive, but makes me wonder how um, effective the test is, you know. Well, anyway, we, we appreciate you battling through it and, and coming on this podcast through all this. Holy cow, man. Like, hope you feel better soon. The symptoms aren't terrible, to be honest. I haven't even had a fever, which is weird. But the worst part is trying to take care of, you know, eight-month-old baby with this. I pretty much stay in the basement. And when I am needed to help, I have to put a mask on, you know do anything I can quickly and get and be done with it. So that's been the worst part. You don't want, you know, babies getting this. I'm going to take a step back just in case some of our listeners don't actually know what the soapbox derby is. I don't know how they wouldn't. I feel like, like Kyle said, it's kind of an American pastime, but maybe they don't. Uh, can you go a little bit into soapbox derby, what it is and basically the whole kind of starting culture behind that, Matt? From what I understand was started Originally, they were actually racing like soapboxes way, way back. And it's kept that name ever since. So the whole idea is it's a family event where 
parents are helping a young child build a car and race it. So it's all started from that idea of family. You're racing down a hill in a car that you build. That's essentially what it is. How long were you involved with that and how did you get into that as a hobby? My family was involved with the Soapbox Derby up in Conneaut, Ohio, where we grew up, starting from when my oldest brother, Brian, was seven or eight. So we were involved probably for the better part of 25 years by the time it was all said and done. And actually, we we maintain, we are still involved um, with the Soapbox Derby now, even though we're not racing and none of our uh, kids are racing yet. So we help out every year with that race up in Conneaut. So the dad's doing all the engineering, and then he's throwing the kid down the down the hill saying, hope you win, son, and then the son gets to collect the trophy at the end, hopefully. Son or daughter, yeah. Originally, the design was kind of up to you. You could you know, build it custom how you wanted it to be done. Over the years, it's been refined into kits that you can buy directly from the Soapbox Derby here in Akron. So you buy the kit, depending on what your kid is eligible for. You'll buy the kit, you'll put it together, you'll find a local race near you, and you'll enter your kids, and uh, you'll compete. Now, if you win the, you know, your local race, you're eligible to compete in the All-American race here in Akron. What differentiates like one car from another? Like, How do you gain an advantage to actually win? Is it just how well you build the kit? So you're right. Everything starts from the base kit and you get instructions to how to put that together. So there's a set of rules that you can't deviate from certain parameters of the car. There's some things that you can tweak, such as alignment, right? That's huge. We know engineering. If the car, the tires are out of alignment with each other, you're going to have problems. You'll create more friction. You'll be a slower car. Aerodynamics. So the outside of the car is everybody's is the same because it's a kit. Now, is that a rule that everyone has to use the kit now? You mentioned that you can get it as a kit. Can you, can you just go from scratch and just follow the guidelines too? No, you have to use the kits nowadays. What had happened was the kit started out, you could still tweak some stuff, but over the years, as people, you know, inevitably are busier, the Soapbox Derby has kind of refined that kit and made it easier and less amount of time to put together. So like, just to give you an example, my older brother, Brian, he, him and my dad spent, oh God, probably over a hundred hours making his car for the master's class. And for me, so five years later, well, five-ish years later, that same kit was probably 50 hours to put together because there were less things that you could kind of make your own. Like I said, they try to refine it and make it faster so that to get more people involved with the race. Everything's about time nowadays. So what differentiates the classes? You said Brian competed in the master's class. Do you know what some of the other ones are? There's three classes now. There's stock class. The youngest kids will use that smallest car. The next class is the super stock, which typically you can be in. I've seen people be in that all through high school, depending how big they are. And then there's a master's class, which is not only the longest build time of a car, but it's the hardest really to drive for a few different reasons we could get into. 
that's reserved. It's kind of the same age range as the super stock, but there's a few more criteria for someone that would want to drive that. But beyond that, the actual race, like Josh was asking, typically for a local race, we don't have our own racetracks. You know, we're not NASCAR here. So what they'll do is they'll find a nice hill somewhere in your city. For us in Conneaut, that was a nice four-lane road that goes underneath a train bridge. So every summer, it's right, right around Father's Day, the city of Conneaut will close down that road right underneath that drain bridge. And we'll turn that into, you know, a track. So you'll start on one side, you have a ramp, and basically you load the cars in, you know, the starting line operator will release them and they'll just, uh, you know, it's a gravity racing. So there's no motor. You're just gliding down the hill and whoever's car crosses the finish line first will win. And it's all based on gravity. So, and how good of a driver you are and how good your car is. I'm trying to visualize this right now. And the picture in my head that I'm seeing is something similar to the boy scouts and girl scouts, like Pinewood derbies where you have like the little miniature cars, except this is like the human edition where you're you're actually driving and have a a human interface to it. Exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. I should have gave that analogy. It's, it's exactly what it is. So when you're driving, is there pretty much nothing to it other than you're trying to keep the car in a straight line? There's no like curves or anything that you have to take, right? (laughs) Right. It's, it's straight down, straight downhill. There is some strategy depending on the actual uh, road, the hill itself. So you can imagine roads are constructed, right, for water to flow to the drainage, the ditch. They all There's a crown in the middle of the road, and then it all slants down towards the curb from there, right, on both sides. So the strategy... It sounds like you'd want to be in the middle, right? You know, depending on which family you talk to about different strategies, they'll all probably give you a different story on what to do, what they think is best. They're going up to the to the the judges beforehand trying to give a 20 to the guy, hey, I want my car over on, on in this lane here, man. Come on, dude, help me out. Well, it's so at least at our race it was only two lanes. So you're facing you're just it's a head to head matchup. So what's your opinion? Where are you driving your car? A lot of the time it <laughs> I, I should have mentioned this as well. If you can also imagine roads are typically in disrepair, especially Around here with all the, you know, harsh winters and salt and and whatnot. So there's a lot of cracks along the road and any bump or anything can throw you off. It can slow your car down. So every year the strategy seemed to change when we were, when we would walk the track, we would point out, you know, different areas of the hill where you want to avoid and you want to avoid potholes too, right? (laughs) Those might slow you down. So the strategy for us, for my family, it changed almost every year. We never could quite say how much of our strategy or anybody else's strategy really played into it. But when you have a gravity racing event where the cars are a lot alike, I mean, every little minute detail can count. And you got to start like like being like a wrestler and like checking your way in before before the race happens. Like, do I need to gain a couple pounds here, guys? Or like, am I good weight or I need to cut 10 pounds here? Right. Because the it's all weight. Each class has a weight. Your car plus you can weigh. So 
yeah, if, if you weigh 100 and you know 10 pounds, but your weight limit is 150, you could add 40 pounds, but you can disperse that 40 pounds, can spread it out equally on each axle. You can. There's all these kind of engineering games that you could play, and of course, it was always the parent playing that uh, strategy, right? The kids driving. Yeah, can we dive into that a little bit? I, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want to give or not. So how much free range on these kind of nuance engineering feats can the parents actually dive into? So you, you talked a little bit about the alignment starting off with, and then obviously you probably know the weight of your kid. What's the, you know, for your super stock class, what's the weight that you have to do? And then what's what are the kind of other things besides the alignment that you're trying to tweak you know, is it your axle needs to be super, super clean so that it's acting like a really slick bearing or, or what are we doing here? Yeah. So as far as the weight class, those seem to change the all American soapbox derby. They'll, they'll set that weight limit for each division. Uh, I honestly couldn't tell you what it is now since we've been out of like competitive racing for a while. But they do change every year. Obviously, the stock class is the lowest weight because it's the youngest kids competing. And then super stock and masters are somewhat similar. I think masters might have a higher weight limit. But yeah, the idea is everyone's car is going to weigh the same in the end with the weight of the car plus the driver because, right, it's a gravity event. That's fair. But what can happen is when you do your weigh-in, They'll tell you, hey, your right front wheel has, you know, 57 pounds. Your left front has 63 and so on. So knowing that you can adjust maybe the position of the driver, like your kid. Maybe you can adjust the position of the weights that you've added to your car. Maybe you can put more weight in the back of the car versus the front of the car because you want weight further up the hill. Some families like to put the weight in the front. The extra weight some always put it in the back i think we like to have equal weight on each axle the as much as we could because we were afraid of cross bind and uh, unequal weight on one wheel causing more friction there's all kinds of different ideas and it, you can really get down the rabbit hole as you can imagine with with this <laughs> That hit right on the right on the head there. I think. I mean, like you said, depending on what family is going to get into it, you know, there might be one family, like you said, oh, we got to get all the way in the front. It's gonna it's gonna make us get accelerate faster. Or you know, if I put my weight all the way in the back, like we're gonna hold our top speed longer. Like you know, like you said, that all those different engineering traits will play into it, and based on your knowledge of technical understanding i guess you could pick your poison <laughs> i don't know kyle what what would you pick what are you going after well i think it probably depends on the hill i guess because if you put your weight in the back if it was just like a straight ramp i don't think it would matter because the change in elevation would be the same no matter what i guess but if your hill was like had like a different slope to it towards the bottom. I think probably one would be better than the other slightly. Right. That, so that goes back to what Matt was saying, what you were saying earlier, Matt, about, you know, evaluating your race each year with the road condition might change and everything. And I mean, from when you first walk it, 
I mean, can you really, can you really prepare yourself ahead of time in these races? Are you getting, are you going out to walk this road, you know, a, a couple weeks before the race happens, a couple months, how far along are you, you checking out the, the race, the raceway before it actually takes place? Yeah. So for my family, we always raced at the same local event up in Conyot. So we roughly knew it was always the same hill, right? Every year for 30 years now. So the strategy really wouldn't change as far as what we would choose for weight distribution. But what does change, like you said, is that every year the road might look different because of what happened over the winter, what happened in the time between the race. So maybe there's been damage because of the winter, the, you know, salt, salt trucks roughing it up, uh, anything. There was one year where they had done some work on the, um, the pipes underneath. So they had re-asphalted one section. <laughs> so you never really knew what was going to happen, what the road was going to look like when you got there. But as far as weight distribution that was usually not something that you would change because of the conditions of the road now if you were to go to different events like you're free to go to different areas and do what they call rallies so a local event you're supposed to pretty much stay to your local area but the rallies are kind of open-ended you can kind of go wherever you want with those yeah so that that's the first time you mentioned rallies compared to your your local races does can you, is there like a certain number of events you can, you know, partake in in order to like advance your, your standing? Like if you win your local race, do you get to go to rallies or you can just go to rallies whenever and win, win as many as you want kind of thing? Or, or how does that work in the scheme of, I don't know, is there a point system for, for this in order to keep in track of like national standings? Right. So the local events are like, kind of like if you win your division in football, that you know, or baseball basketball if you win your local event you're guaranteed uh, a spot at the national actually the world championship in akron you're guaranteed like you've, you've punched your ticket now if you don't win your local event or you don't have a local event that you want to go to you can do you can do the rally system which is point based like you were saying and basically you go to a rally and if you win some races, those count as points for you, right? Um, I'm trying to think of an equivalent system. NASCAR. There you go, NASCAR. If you get enough points, you can qualify to race at the World Championship in Akron. So there's two different ways to get there. We we never did rallies. Uh, we just always did our, our yearly race up in Conneaut. And if we won, we would go to Akron. If not, we, you know, hey, it was fun. <laughs> if you won. How many times you win? That's, it sounds like you won a couple then. So I I won once in the Masters division, and my older brother Brian won once in the Masters division. Rest of us, or you know, the three other brothers, um, we all did well. A lot of second place finishes, lots of third place finishes. It's it's tough. It's a you know, it's very competitive. <laughs> so how many local races are there in? across the country because if there's like 10,000 I feel like the national championship would take like six months in order to go through the event in Akron is actually on the world level it's not only national so there's people competing from Japan Australia I mean (laughs) it's it's a world 
level event. And all you got to do is win your local your local race. Basically. That's awesome. Yeah, and you guys probably didn't realize this was all happening here in Akron. I went to school there for five years, and I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, there's. they used to have a parade, actually, through downtown Akron where um, all the racers would be in the, this parade, and there, it was kind of a big deal. But, like, over the years, it's kind of, you know, like everything, it's kind of waned. The race still happens, for sure, but financial issues, you know, stuff like that, sponsorships. Coronavirus blocking of the of the whole transportation to no way you're no way i'm letting a chinese soapbox come over here i think this year they actually just canceled it outright i know the local race in conneaut was canceled the nat the world championship was canceled too but yeah like when i was when i won my local race and i went to akron to race you'd see pallets you know cars from russia just like crazy and you're just wow they're all coming here and you you would never know it. So before we got started, I was reading kind of about the history of the Soapbox Derby. And you're saying it used to be a lot more popular, I guess, back in its heyday in like the 60s. It was one of the top five most attended sporting events in the country. Wow. I did not know that. So that's how popular it used to be. So you're like up there with like the Kentucky Derby, the Super Bowl and all that stuff. So... That's how crazy it used to be back in the day. Yeah, have you guys been to the hill in Akron? I was at Derby Downs for a super mileage event. Okay. I haven't been to the one in Akron. I was telling Kyle before this, Matt, in our hometown, I think we actually have a local race not too far from our hometown in Louisville, Ohio. Same kind of thing. It's just a just a hill at like an old like excavating dash like mining place that they set up for it. And I know they used to have races there and they had to close off the roads and everything for it, but I never, I never participated. So I didn't, I didn't really know that much about it. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen during a race? Has any kid like gone off course and like crashed into something or. The craziest stuff I've seen has been after I was actually racing, you know, since I, like I've said, we've, my whole family has been helping with our local race. So We've been running the finish line uh, booth, helping really with anything that needed done the day of the race. Um, there's a lot that goes in. Like you can imagine, you're shutting down a road and you're setting up a like a track basically. Now you're you're following the lanes that are already there, but you got to set hay bales up to protect kids. Maybe the kids going to go off the side and and run into the storm drain. So you got to have hay bales lined up there to keep that from happening has there ever been a crazy fan that jumped out in the middle of a race and like tried to wreck anyone not not tried to wreck anybody but it seemed like every year there's somebody who just doesn't want to listen and will you know run across the track just because you know i mean that usually happens every year we have to you know yell at somebody hey get off the track what are you doing you know so how do you stop i'm assuming it's like a like a brake lever or something it's not like a parachute or anything. It's not that extreme, right? <laughs> so the steering wheel is both a steering wheel and, well, I should back up. This this would only apply to the master's division, but the steering wheel is both, you know, you're steering with it, but also if you would pull it towards you, it's the brake. <laughs> so there's a, there's like a rubber, 
uh, how should I say, like a plunger, rubber plunger that as you pull it, pull the steering wheel towards you, it will depress below the car and, and, you know, make contact with the road and slow you down. So normally that plunger is like flush with the floorboard, right? Because it's recessed, you know, but yeah, as soon as you pull it, pull the steering wheel towards you, it'll, it'll uh, make contact with the road. Now for the stock and the super stock, it's an actual pedal. The reason for that is there's usually more room because the kids are smaller in the stock and super stock division. Whoa. Okay. That's intricate. That's cool. So there's more room to have an actual brake pedal, but it's the same idea. The, now the brake pedal is, you know, making the plunger make contact with the road. What's the top speed of this thing when you're coming down the hill? The hill in Kanye, it might be 25 miles an hour. Okay. I wouldn't quote me on that. Every hill is different, obviously, right? Yeah. The one in Akron is obviously faster. It's a steeper hill. It's longer. I would tell you the one in Akron used to be a lot faster. If you ever go to Derby Downs and like get the chance to walk the track, you'll see where the starting line is now. But if you keep walking further up the hill towards the very top, you'll see these historical markers. And each one of those markers will have a year on it. You know, that marker is going to tell you Hey, and you know, 1963, the starting line was here. How much did we care about how fast our kids went and crashed back then? <laughs> no, I mean, you would be, some of these starting areas were just way up there. I mean, like the steepest part of the hill, you'd be flying. The only thing I could think of is that maybe back then the cars weren't as fast because maybe the tires had more friction. The bearings not have been as good, you know, stuff like that. But, and if they were like they are today, you would just be cruising. <laughs> so are the races normally pretty close or does the best car pretty much just blow everybody out of the water? So the races at in Akron for the world championship are super tight. I mean, right, because all the cars at the world championship, they've already won their local event, which is hard enough, or they've collected enough points through the rally system to get there. So everybody's car is good and all the drivers are good. So it's always typically a photo finish and, you know, there's a judge sitting right above the finish line. He's looking at these computer photo printouts to see who won. That's not to say that every race is going to be that close. A lot of the time you can just tell with, you know, looking at it, oh, you know, lane two won or, hey, lane one, they got it. But usually it's very tight and it's hard to tell just looking at it. So I guess back in 1973, there's a huge controversy where this kid was like blowing everybody out of the water. He was winning by like 30 feet and everybody was like, all right, this is a little suspicious. So then they x-rayed his car and found out that he had an electromagnet in the front of his car so that the, the thing where it lowers down to let the cars roll down the hill, it like somehow pulled the car with a force towards that, that metal thing. And it gave him a boost right at the beginning. And so they had to x-ray the car and figure out that he was cheating. And then they had to strip him of his national title. I mean, props for trying. That is awesome. I know he, he cheated and lost, but that's awesome. <laughs> Electromagnet to give him an advantage. Wow. It does raise a good point though, that I mentioned earlier, there's a set of rules, you know, that come with, the kits when you build them and at the local events the rallies the world championship there's these judges 
I shouldn't call them judges. There's just inspectors that will scrutinize every last detail of your car to make sure that one, it's safe. And two, like you haven't done anything like you just described, right? That, and that you've built the car to the rule book. It is quite well controlled now. I don't, I can't say back then, but, and even when you do win, your car goes through another inspection just to make sure that, Hey, you didn't do anything like illegal throughout the race. You didn't blackmail the inspector to, to bypass this magnet you had. What is your paint job? Like, do you get to pick like a number? Do you have like a sponsor that you can get? You can get sponsors. A lot of times what kids and what the families would do is take the car to maybe like a body shop and they'll ask them, hey, can you, you know, paint this car? And we'll let you put your body shop's name on the car as like an advertisement in return, right? That happened a lot because in the, the body shops would do it a lot of the time because it it's for a good cause. Like this is, you know, there's no money involved in this. The kids are doing it. It's a family event, right? It's just a fun time. A lot of times we would paint our own cars, you know, like for us, my dad, the company, he had a paint shop, paint room. So we would go in there and pick out a color and paint it. But when the body shops would do it, they would, there would be some pretty exotic looking cars. I mean, really well done. (laughs) The ice cream paint job, huh? I mean, like works of art type thing. Like, wow. Our designs are just, you know, we'd pick out like a decal and we'd make a sticker out of it, you know, paint the car, usually one tone, put the sticker on and, you know, be done with it. So do you have to wear a helmet when you're going down the hill? I'm guessing you probably do. Back in the day, they probably just uh, put your ball hat on scooter and give it a go. Yeah. That's probably the only thing sticking out of the top of the car, right? If I I haven't actually ever seen pictures of Soapbox Derby, as, as sad as that is to say, I imagine just your head is kind of sticking out to try and help with aerodynamics, right? Earlier, we were talking about like competitive advantages. And one part I didn't touch on is in the stock and the super stock, the driver is kind of in like this, you said you haven't seen pictures, maybe Kyle has, but the drivers in those two divisions are kind of, they got their feet forward, right? Touching the brake pedal. And then their back, you're kind of like, arching your back forward and putting your head down as close as possible to your the, the shell of the car as close as possible but still like maintaining that forward looking vision and then you got your hands tucked in on the steering wheel so you're like you're in there and it, there's not much room at all so as you're right as low as you can get your head the better you're going to be because you've got less drag, less air drag. That's a huge deal. I feel like you need to like cut eye holes out and like get below the surface. So with the winter Olympics coming up, it's pretty much like the bobsled event, right? Other than that, it's straight downhill instead of bobsled has all the windy turns and stuff, but so nothing like bobsledding. (laughs) (laughs) Although I think at the beginning of bobsled, aren't they like out of the, bobsled running with it first yeah you gotta run and then jump in but then they get down real low and try to hide as much as possible that's why i said it was similar to bobsled i mean it's the closest analogy there there probably is out there other than the pinewood derby like josh was saying so kind of like kyle saying to close out here uh do you have any tips matt for you know maybe families looking to get into this as a you said it's fun to get into. It sounds like a great a great thing to get into for 
for families. What kind of age bracket are we looking to for like your your young drivers here and how much upfront costs are we looking at in order to get into something like this? It's fun for parents, the family, you know, everybody. You can imagine, you know, you've seen competitive families in baseball, you know, yelling, hey, go Johnny. Just imagine that, but, you know, a racing event where you're competing with other families. I mean, it, it's fun. So I know for the stock division, you can have your kid race as early as seven years old. It used to be more like, I think it was 10 years old at one point, but they've slowly relaxed that to seven. So yeah, seven years old, you can you can race. Now on the upper end, you can race all the way up until you're 20 years old if you can fit in the car, right? That's usually what does it. Any really, any school-aged kid can do this. So I wouldn't have been able to participate after like 14. That's great. The guideline I've seen is up to like six foot and 150 pounds. Obviously be in the super stock and the masters, you know, those two divisions. The stock division, you're kind of done. I wouldn't think you could fit in the car past like 12 years old. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and enlightening us with this All-American Classic that was right in our backyard and... I had no idea until I was in college when I went to that super mileage event there and they had like a thing at Derby Downs. And I was like, I had no idea this was even was even here. So it was nice to have one of the sports legends on our podcast to uh, describe it. Yeah, no problem. Audrey and Lincoln will have to get into uh, the same event so we can race. They're pretty much the same age, so I'm sure they'll be starting around the same time. This is definitely something I could see myself getting into with her and what a cool sport too i mean and not just a sport i mean we're we're all engineers and so it, it kind of plays to our careers also but that that is so cool that how the family aspect like you're talking about man i think is probably the most important thing other than you know winning it winning is nice but getting to do all that other stuff like you were saying i think makes it truly an american american sport so thanks for sharing that with us all right, guys, now it's time for the part of the episode where Kyle and I get to talk about whether or not we would find ourselves participating in the hobby that we just talked about. In this case, we're talking about the Soapbox Derby, which Matt explained is a, a pretty family-oriented hobby, as well as a competition-based hobby. We'll start off with you, Kyle. What do you think about it? I like it. It's a nice, clean, family fun activity. I think... Well, for the listeners out there, I have a one-year-old daughter, so it'll probably be a while before I get into it. But once she's old enough, I could see myself and her going into that and building a car for the local race. I think Matt said, what, seven years old that the kids can start racing? Is that right? Yeah, I think for the entry division, that's what the age was. So about six years from now, I can get into it. And you can always practice beforehand and depending on how competitive you want to be into it, you could, you know, work on a car before and, and try and get your kid familiarized with, with the car. So that way, when you go into it your first year, you might have a little bit of an advantage there, right? Yeah, I think it would be kind of cool just to build a car and kind of optimize it for six years and then come out of the shoot first year and just start dominating. Everyone would be like, dude, what what is up with this kid being so good at, at Soapbox Derby already? And one thing about Audrey is even though she's only one year old, you can tell she is just absolutely fearless. She will try to dive off the couch head first and 
all this all this kind of stuff like that and i'm just like she's gonna be a daredevil when she is older see that yeah i guess that that points out one thing i was kind of concerned with with a kid being that young i feel like he'd have to be pretty brave you know i don't know you know depending on what hill your local race was like matt was saying if you're going 25 mile an hour <laughs> as a seven-year-old, I mean, that, that'd be pretty exhilarating. And I could see how, you know, some kids that might get freaked out by that, you know. What about you? When you're at that point, do you think you'll either help with the race itself or when you have kids, do you think you will involve yourself in the soapbox derby? I think, you know, being in the engineering background like you and, and Matt, uh, I think I would like to get into it because I'm a car guy too. So I think at least trying it out would be fun. I don't know if I'd want to get super competitive into it. I'd have to see how, you know, my kid reacted to trying it out the first year. But it's something I would definitely mention and see if that's something that they would, you know, participate in. And, you know, if not, I I actually do like volunteering a lot. So you know, nonprofit organization like that, I think is a pretty cool thing to volunteer at. So heck yeah, I guess we'd have to look for like a local race. I'm not even sure where my local race is anymore. I'd have to look that up, but I think that'd be a lot of fun. You know, all the kids and their families work really hard, you know, all summer long to build a car and you get to see the winner that day and all the experiences that, that go through that. It's pretty cool. All right, so it sounds like the bottom line is both of us might do this in the future, so I think uh, this one has captured us. So do you got any parting words? Yeah, I think for you know the people out there who aren't engineers and aren't necessarily car people, I think the one big thing to take away from this episode, and I agree with Matt 100%, is it it's so cool to have like special moments with your family like that and being able to you know, see that look uh, the first time your kid goes down that hill, like you're saying, like maybe, maybe they're, maybe you wait a couple years instead of being seven, maybe they're 10 years old the first time you do it and you get the car built and everything. But man, I, I bet you that, that picture, the first time the the cars take off down the hill, I bet you those are priceless moments. You know what I mean? So, you know, if you're into stuff like that and just want to see either pure joy, pure horror, or, you know, excitement, that, that's a cool opportunity. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree. So I guess that wraps up episode eight, Soapbox Derby. So we'd like to hear from you guys. Check us out on our Facebook page, Claptrap Country, and we will see you next time. Thanks, guys.